Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Last weekend, I had the pleasure of reading Bob Schieffer's new book, Overload, that he co wrote with the Center for Strategic and International Studies Chief Communications Officer Andrew Schwartz. When someone is named by the Library of Congress a living legend, a long introduction is not needed. But what an amazing career! one that continues today. Bob Schieffer has been first and foremost a reporter for over 60 years, including four decades at CBS News, where over the course of his career, he anchored the CBS Evening News, was the host of Face the Nation for two decades, and moderated three presidential debates. And an often remembered fact is that shortly after President Kennedy was shot, Bob, who was then a reporter with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, took a phone call from Lee Harvey Oswald's mother and drove her to Dallas and accompanied her to the police station. So great to have you here. And thanks for being such a great supporter of World Affairs Councils all over the country. Thank you very much. Two things are vividly apparent when I read Overload. One, that you respect and believe that good journalism is essential to the health of our democratic traditions. And two, that you are increasingly concerned about your profession and how it has really become a whipping post given the growing polarization we are witnessing. Well, it has, and that is very troubling, I guess would be the word that I would use, because we can't have a democracy as we know it without an independent press. That's what separates us from a totalitarian society, where the only source of news is the government. In our form of government, citizens have access to independently gathered information that they can compare to the government's version of events and then decide what to do about it. That's our assignment. That's what the founders intended for us to do. Uh, we weren't always expected to be the most popular person in the room, and most of the time we're certainly not. But that's the role of the press. That's what we do. I'm very proud to be a part of that. Those who try to undermine our credibility or basically destroy us are really taking aim at the foundations of our democracy. One of the themes that you have in your book is the loss of local press. Yeah. And just a few days ago, there was a good story in the Washington Post about the demise of the Baltimore City paper, who announced that it would be closing. And as you know better than I do, so many papers have closed. Give us a sense of the statistics and why is it so important that we maintain a strong local press? I think this is the real crisis in journalism. It's not so much at the national level now, but at the local level. We have lost 126 newspapers across the country in the last 12 years. One reporter in eight in 2004 lived in Washington, New York, or Los Angeles. That number is now down to one in five. One reporter in five lives in one of those three cities. So that just shows you what's happening out in the country. We, when you get out into some of these areas, it's not a question of biased news or slanted news. It's a question of no news. These folks are getting no information except what they can gather up on social media. And you know and I know that while social media is a wonderful thing and it's a great way Facebook is to keep up with your relatives and kids, the things that appear on Facebook have not been vetted 
in the way that the news we used to get from our traditional sources was. I mean, when I was growing up here and was a young reporter in Fort Worth, for example, you know, we had two newspapers, we had three television stations, we read Time and Newsweek, and, you know, maybe we didn't agree with the editorial policies of those publications, but we took for granted that what they put on the front page or what they broadcast was true. In other words, it had been checked out, it had been vetted, and we didn't broadcast it or publish it unless it was. Well, the stuff that is showing up on the web now, there are now 700 channels on your television set. There are more websites than that on the web. So we're being bombarded with all of this information and we don't know if it's true, false, or somewhere in between. And now we know that some of it is wrong by design. We are now learning, and I write about in the book, how the Russians have embarked on this campaign to infiltrate our media. They're putting out this fake news disguised as and coming that some from of the protests domestic, that we saw this past year yes, were really encouraged. Yeah, coming by those. from domestic sources. I mean, this one heart of Texas was advocating and urging Texans to secede from the Union. Well, this wasn't a Texas-based organization. This was a Russian web site that had disguised itself as a domestic site and putting this out. There's another one they call a blacktivist, which was urging African Americans who felt abused by the police to get an eye for an eye. Again, this is the Russians just doing this to stir up trouble and try to destroy our credibility. Uh, this is an extremely serious matter, and we have to recognize it for what it is. So what is the responsibility of Facebook? And the chairman and founder says, you know, we're not the arbiter of the truth. Well, you know, this is what's interesting about these big companies, Facebook and Google. Up until about a month ago, they didn't want to admit that they were even media companies. They said, look, uh, we're just a technology company. We can't be responsible for the content that appears through our technology. It's CBS News. If we libel someone, they have recourse. They can sue to say, and now you have Facebook. 62% of Americans get some of their news off Facebook. At least that was the stat when I started writing this book. It may be up to 67% now. And, and something that I saw when I was just getting ready to talk with you earlier today, there's a new trend that 55% of Americans over 50 are getting their news on social media, and a large number are getting it on Twitter, which really surprised me. Yeah, and that's great. The technology is giving us this ability to transmit information and get information that we never could have before. But there's no curator here. That's what's wrong. We're running short on curators. Mark Twain said, a lie could go around the world and back before the truth can get its pants on. And that was has never been more true than it is today. And that's what we're dealing with because the bad thing is when this bad information gets out there, it's virtually impossible to take it down. Best example I can think of, Barack Obama is not a citizen because he wasn't born in the United States. Mm -hmm. How much fact-checking do we have to do to knock that down? We know it's not true. <laughs> There's incontrovertible so, evidence so, so that it's not true. So why do you think true. people can believe in these conspiracies? Because they want to because they think it confirms something that they already believe. And, and sometimes when times are tough or when times are confusing, people find it easier to believe these conspiracies. But I mean, there's a certain percentage of people that believe that the government was behind 9-11. This most recent thing in Washington where the story came out on social media that this ping pong pizza parlor that Hillary Clinton 
was running a child pornography ring in the basement. Well, how absurd. But people believed that. It was proven to be totally without foundation, totally untrue. But yet a man came from another state, shot the doorknob off yeah. one of the doors because he was going down into the basement and rescue these children. The first thing he found out, of course, there was no basement there. It was totally false. But the man that owns that pizza place, he still has to hire private security because he's still getting death threats. Once this stuff is out there, it's virtually it's hard to impossible take down. to take it down. Two papers are doing, or maybe I shouldn't say papers, two media companies are doing much better than they were, Washington yeah. Post and New York Times. What's this, been the secret to their success? Well, if newspapers are to be saved, if our industry is to be saved, it's going to be because of the way, starting with the Washington Post and the Times was not far behind. They have totally reinvented themselves. They're no longer just newspaper companies. They, they are putting out the information on a variety of platforms. I mean, they're putting heavy emphasis on their digital product. And as a result of this, in November of this year, when the Washington Post was reaching 70 million people in one month, with their digital product. Now the circulation of their paper is 400,000. Mm. So they're doing well. They but hired, can they make enough money? And so far so good. They, they've been in the black for two years in a row. They hired 60 reporters this year. I don't know of any paper in the United States that, that has been able to do that. The Times is doing just as well. And we saw some remarkable journalism by these two companies during the campaign. I mean, you go back and look at the interviews that Maggie Haberman and David Sanger did for the New York Times, just sitting Donald Trump down and saying, tell us what do you think our relationship with NATO is? Not gotcha journalism, not jumping from behind a bush with a microphone, but just asking intelligent questions and giving him time to answer. I mean, these were very helpful, very insightful to what Donald Trump knows and frankly doesn't know. You know, one of the questions that people always ask, does the media bear any responsibility for what happened in the 2016 election, the way the debates were handled and so forth? <laughs> I've never written a story or I've never covered a campaign that I didn't think we couldn't have done better. Did they not I, take President Trump seriously enough? Here's what happened. His supporters, his strongest supporters, took him seriously but not literally. I think we took him literally but sometimes not seriously. I remember interviewing a young female army officer the day after the election. I just happened to be on a plane going to Houston. And I said, so who'd you vote for? And she said, I voted for Trump. And I said, why? Tell me why. And she said, because I think he was serious about the things that concerned me. She said, I never thought he was going to build that wall down there, but said, I thought he was very serious about doing something about immigration, and that concerns me. And this woman was Hispanic. Donald Trump won this election uh, with tactics. This was not an election about issues. It was an election about attitude. He figured out, I don't think he knows much about politics, quite honestly. I'm, he got himself. He knows enough to get elected president. But I think what he really knows something about is television. He figured out early on that if you ask enough television programs, uh, some of them will invite you to be on. And if you say something a little outrageous, somebody else will invite you And you, you dominate to be the on. news cycle. And you dominate the news cycle. Hillary Clinton ran the old-fashioned way, a consultant-driven 
they spent most of their time raising money. They spent most of their time making sure they didn't put her in a position where she might be asked a question that she didn't know the answer to. She didn't do many Sunday shows. So while she was kind of staying away from the press, he was just there every minute you turned around. And I, I say in the book, I don't know if he realized it or not, but he was practicing what they call in politics the dead cat theory, the dead cat strategy. And that is, if, if you're having a dinner party, I don't care what you're talking about. If somebody throws a dead cat in the middle of the table, you're going to talk about the dead cat. It changes the conversation. And time and again, he would, wherever the narration of the campaign was going, he would throw this dead cat in the middle of the table. It stopped the campaign rhetoric. From that moment on, the rest of the day, people were talking about You're Donald right. Trump. You're right. I mean, he is a master at that. And he was, he was uh, give him credit. He, he was very good at it. He figured it out. I called Mika Brzezinski, uh, the Morning Joe sure. program, and I said, you know, you guys have Donald Trump on every other day. Why don't you ever have on Hillary Clinton? She said, Bob, having Hillary Clinton, getting her to do an interview would be like getting an interview with Mother Teresa and said she's dead. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, it's true. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're running out of time. <laughs> Bob, we have barely scratched the surface of Overload. I really enjoyed the book, and I hope our members will, who aren't here tonight, we have standing room only, but I hope that they'll purchase your book. It's a great gift for Christmas, and we're just lucky to have you where you are. Thank well, you, thank Bob. you, and I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.